is something I know about. If we ever get out of this, remind me to tell you about it. <laughs> oh, you're back. Great. Are you ready to check out Malik's room? Indeed we are, lovey. Thanks for waiting. Lead on. This way. Who knows what we'll find in there. The more hands the better. Evening all. Are you ready to do this? Lead on. Lovey and I c- can get through. Shall we check it out without you two? No. Not yet. We should go in together. Friend. Give me a hand here. I can't see anything in here. Samuel, can you lend me some spirit? Sorry? In your mind. Reach out your will in my direction. Um, okay. Okay. Is it working? Wow, you have powers? They have been weak ever since I arrived. But if you lend me some of the power of your spirit, I can feel them being recharged. This may help take down Malak. I believe so, yes. And where were we? Let's take a look around. What what is that? Shine that light over here, Jimmy. Did you bring me my tea, darling? I feel like it's been a while. Her her body is so emaciated. How is she even alive? I'll get to the bottom of this. Excuse me, miss. Who dares enter the room of the Dark One? Something older and more powerful than you can imagine. You're out of your league on this one, Jimmy Horrors. Please, you're a mere blip in the oblivion. The Dark One is coming for you. None can resist the draw of the last appetite. You will die and be fed to it. You do not know the concept of pain yet. We shall see. For now, be gone with you. He'll get you! I'd like to see him try. Was that his mother? 
I think it was. He, he's going to come hard at us for this. Don't worry about it. It looks like a story to witness. A snowflake in a glass case. Come, friend. Let us witness. You two report our findings to the Mortain brothers. Stay safe, Jimmy and friend. See you soon. The Snow Queen. Written by Georgia Cook. Narrated by James Barnett. I was born a Londoner, and even as a child considered myself a hardy traveller of its twisting streets and familiar cobbles, but it was not my only home. My father had immigrated to England from Denmark as a young boy, and was adamant that my sister and I grew up knowing both countries, as he had. And so, from October to February every year, we packed up our lives in crates and boxes locked up our little London townhouse and sailed halfway across the world to our second home in Carlglom. I'll never forget my first winter abroad, great fat snowflakes flitting to the ground outside, heaping and falling as if the sky would never run out. Some came to rest on the windowsill, forming glittering pyramids, while others stuck to the glass, suspended for a moment as paper-thin jewels before melting away. My sister and I watched in breathless awe, safe by the roaring fire. In many ways, my childhood was a thing divided in two. I never saw London in winter, nor Denmark in summer. I knew them both as things frozen in time, as incapable of moving beyond their designated months as I was of picturing ice across the Thames or flowers in the cold. Our winter home of Kalglum was a tiny town just north of the Danish border, wrapped in thick black forests and gleaming lakes. I'd heard that summer transformed it into a bustling world of tourists and wildflowers, but I knew it only as a place of snow and could picture it no other way. My father was a stoic man, my mother a sad, sickly woman who, I suspect, deeply resented the annual move abroad. Neither were especially adept at caring for two rambunctious children. And so for most of our childhood, my sister and I acquired two nannies. There was our London nanny, a strict, hard-faced woman who taught us French and maths and allocution. And for those blessed winter months abroad, there was Edel. Edel couldn't have been more than 16 herself, barely more than a child, but she was warm and loving and told the best stories, and we adored her. From Edel we learnt the folklore of Scandinavia, all those dark, frozen stories our mother refused to read. We listened, wide-eyed, to tales of elves and fairies and towering Jotna, frozen giants deep beneath Utgard. We learned to listen for the clattering hooves of the Hailhuston, and run before we heard the siren call of the Nokken. We learned of the Holdra, those beautiful maidens with cow's tails, 
and hollow spines who lured men into the woods to hunt for sport. We listened, and we loved it all. Perhaps to combat the negative effect of Edel's tales, or perhaps trying, in her own way to bond with her children, our mother took to telling us her own bedtime stories. They were strict, puritanical things, more Christian morality tales than the wild, beautiful things of Edel. But there was magic in them, of a kind. The one which stuck with me was Hans Christian Andersen's The Snow Queen. Much to our delight, it was a tale set in Scandinavia and concerned the Snow Queen herself, a creature of snow and ice who ruled the lands of winter and was known to ride through the streets in her sleigh, stealing away children. I don't think my mother quite understood what she'd begun to read, because she put the story away without finishing it and refused to continue. But the damage was already done. The image of the Snow Queen in her high white crown, resplendent on her jagged, burning, freezing sleigh, was burned into my imagination. Once, I asked Edel if any such woman existed in her stories. Edel was quiet for a moment. Then, with a strange little smile, told me no. There were no such snow queens in her stories. And that was that. But from then on, Edel's tales acquired new elements. Themes of protection and magic. She taught us that iron will repel the fae, and that entrance to one's home must be granted, not stolen. She taught us to be wary of voices in the woods, and of promises made by beautiful creatures. My sister and I listened, as we always had, but at the time we didn't quite understand the meaning of these new tales. God, I wish we had. For the most part, my memories of Denmark are idyllic, long, bright winters full of magic and fun. But they remain nothing more than memories. I have not returned to Denmark in 20 years. My sister owns the house in Kalgorn, and Edel left our family service long ago. The thought of returning fills me with a fear I cannot articulate. The pang of winter in the air, even here in England, rises more than reflexive goosebumps across my skin, and the nights bring with them a dread that has nothing to do with the dark. I must have been eight or nine, and we had arrived in Kalgorn less than a week earlier. Our winter home had been aired and cleaned, its windows flung open in defiance of the dust. I was alive with the wondrousness of it all, finally cut loose from the clanging bell and itchy grey uniform of my London classroom. Amidst the chaos of unpacking, my sister and I escaped through the front door and down the garden path. We were dab hands by now, and had been wrapped in our warmest clothes before we'd even left the ferry. Snow held no fear for us. Blistered fingers and chapped lips were but a minor price to pay for the gloriousness of the outdoors. Down the lane, past the workmen with their shiny red faces and heavy boots, through the legs of the cart horses, and down, down into the forest we went, laughing and whooping, our cries crystallising in the air. New snow had fallen overnight, and ours were the first footprints. Icicles had crystallised mid-fall, 
hanging from trees so heavy with snow that they bowed low over our heads, turning the world into a soft white tunnel. Sounds were muffled here. Only our footsteps remained unchanged, becoming crunching interlopers in this strange cocoon world. About a mile down the path, just far enough to seem secret and exciting, was a pond my sister and I had discovered a few Novembers back. I'd learnt to skate there. My sister had grazed her knees, tripping on its hard, icy surface. Once, our father showed us how to tap a hole in the ice and sink a fishing line down into the cold, black water. We never caught anything and received such a scolding from our mother when we returned home that we abandoned the game altogether. But we had never abandoned the lake. It was our place, our secret place, secluded among the pines in a deep basin of rock, covered over at all times in a layer of ice. Edel hated it, said she found the water unsettling and found no joy in tramping through the woods to visit it, but the pond was close enough that we could visit it unsupervised, as long as we went together. And so we often did. Walking down that familiar path, my sister some distance ahead was when I first heard the song. Twisted through the trees, high and lilting. So soft that I had to strain to hear. The softness made it feel secret, as if it were meant just for me. was a woman's voice, singing from somewhere deep between the trees. The song bounced from trunk to trunk, making it impossible to tell which side it came from. The song was beautiful, even if I could only hear it faintly, and then it was gone. For a moment I stood enthralled, wondering if my sister had heard it too. But then her sharp cry sounded from off the path, finally breaking me from my trance, and I hurried to join her. My sister was stood on the bank of our pond, her eyes wide, her cheeks red and shiny, staring, and immediately all thoughts of the song fled my mind. Our pond had melted. It shimmered in the open air unstoppered from its familiar layer of thick white ice. A thin breeze ruffled the surface, sending deep round ripples tracing to the toes of our boots. The water looked thinner than it should be, like oil or deep black ink. Edel was right, you couldn't see the bottom. The pond could have plunged down for miles and you wouldn't know. My sister stood frozen, I drew back instinctively. Neither of us wanted to move closer. Suddenly, the pond was no longer our secret special place. There was danger here. Deep forest danger, more prevalent than anything our parents had warned us of. Something had fled the clearing. Something that had been exclusively ours. 
Suddenly we stood on the edge of a deep black void, and one wrong step could send us plunging down into its freezing waters. Suddenly neither of us wanted to be there. We trudged back home and were scolded by our mother for running off. We never told her about the pond or the strangeness of that glass flat water. I think we knew they wouldn't understand our disquietment. I don't think we entirely understood it ourselves. Only Edel seemed to notice something was wrong. Edel, who stoked the fires in our rooms until they blazed, and who checked the locks on our windows before tucking us into bed. Edel, who stroked my forehead and glanced towards the window, out at the bristling woods. It was only as I drifted off to sleep that night that I remembered the lilting song I'd heard in the forest. I lay in the dark, cocooned in blankets and strained to remember the tune. But nothing came to me. Not a note. And I drifted off to sleep with a strange feeling of disappointment and sadness. I awoke suddenly in the dead of night. The room was dark. The coals glowed in the grate. A chill hung in the air like the pang of frost after a snowfall. I sat up in bed, unable to say what had awoken me. Then I heard it again, and saw the thin, dark shape pressed against my window pane. There was a woman outside my window, tapping on the glass. Even as a child I could see she was beautiful. But I couldn't yet comprehend what kind of beautiful she was. Or, indeed, that there was more than one kind. Hers was a wild beauty, a strange, frozen thing. A beauty crouched in the glittering depths of the deepest fjord, or swirling across the snow-swept emptiness of the northern tundra. There was no love in the woman's river pebble eyes, no sweetness in the curve of her pale blue lips. Her smile was the white of hanging icicles. Her eyes the cool bottomlessness of frozen mill ponds. She tapped again at my bedroom window. With her long white finger and smiled. I huddled in my bedclothes and stared. At eight. I was old enough to know that one does not open one's bedroom window to strange midnight women. But as she peered in at me, peering up at her, the snow woman began to sing. She sang in Danish, muffled by the glass, but I recognised it all the same. Her song spoke of bright winter mornings of the sun sparkling on newly fallen snow, of snowball fights, and the sweet breathless tumble of learning to skate. It spoke of close December evenings and crisp January mornings. It spoke of things no mortal understood, of pelting through the air on a cloudless winter night, of dancing under a round red moon as a drop of rain, of hearing the deep booming voice of an arctic ditch. 
Entranced, I realized I'd kicked off the covers and was walking towards the window. My steps were slow and unsteady, as if I were moving through water, and I stumbled over familiar toys and chair legs as I went. The snow lady smiled her bright icy smile and nodded. I barely knew what I was doing. I just wanted to hear the song again. My father had warned me never to touch the latch on my bedroom window. It was thick and heavy with rust, and my small hands could barely lift it. But tonight, it came away easily. The snow lady opened her arms to me as a blast of icy air filled the room. She brushed her hand across my cheek, and suddenly I no longer felt the cold. No longer felt the sting of snowflakes against my skin. It was like being dipped in a warm, steamy bathtub. She whispered. A loud bang startled us. A log had fallen in the fireplace, sending a swirl of embers high into the air. The snow lady drew back with a hiss. Her lips pulled over her teeth that were suddenly pointed. She pushed me away, her hands leaving trails of frost across my nightshirt, and I stumbled back. I must have tripped and banged my head because they found me unconscious on my bedroom floor the next morning, the window hanging wide open above me. Little drifts of snow had settled around the room and across my pyjamas. I was stone cold and nearly blue from hypothermia. But what I'll always remember, as stark as the cold, as fresh as the midnight air, is the dream I had as I lay in bed in the days after. In my dream, it was the dead of night, and I watched as Edel stole down into the forest below our house, past the trees, through the long white corridor of snow, to the frozen pond. The water lay as still as glass. In my dream, Edel paused on the bank and drew a handful of thin black nails from inside her cloak. Iron nails stolen from the floorboards and tabletops and doorways of our home. They glinted in the moonlight, even rusted and old as they were, and in my dream, Edel hurled them into the pond, one after the other, and watched them drop away without a sound, without a ripple. In my dream, I finally realized what had scared my sister and I so much that day, what had unnerved us about the pond, even if we hadn't entirely known what we were looking at. Although it was hemmed on all sides by tall, snow-laden firs, although the sky above it was clear and white, and we'd been close enough to peer over the edge, there were no reflections in the water. Not one. It was a hole, a deep black hole in the world, filled with nothing so normal as water. When at last my fever broke and I returned to the land of the living, I discovered a heavy iron nail, 
worn smooth and blunted with rust, nestled beneath my pillow. I kept it there for the remainder of that winter and every winter after and didn't tell my parents. Edel and I never spoke of the pond or the nail or the woman at my window, but I think she knew. I think there was nothing either of us needed to say. I never saw the Snow Queen again or heard the song. Edel left when I was 14, a year before my parents' divorce, and I never returned to Denmark. I am married now, with children of my own, and maybe one day I'll take them back there to see the whirling snow and endless white skies. Maybe I won't. Iron lasts a long time, but water eats everything eventually. Snow is infrequent and fleeting in London, but on the rare occasions it appears when my daughters are safely tucked up in bed and my wife lies sleeping beside me, I slip quietly out of bed and make my way downstairs. Then I stand on the porch all night sometimes and watch the snowflakes fall. And although it has been many years and I'm many miles away, through the tumbling whiteness I will strain to hear the final few notes of the Snow Queen's song. And I wonder what will happen when I do. You've been listening to the Night's End podcast, which is a production of Dissonance Media. The Snow Queen was written by Georgia Cook. For more from Georgia, go and connect with her on Twitter at Georgia Cooked. This episode was narrated by James Barnett, who also performed Jimmy Horrors. You can see more from James at jamesbarnettauthor.com. Lovey was performed by Mary Ann Coleman who is the host of Walking the Shadowlands, which is a podcast about all things paranormal, unknown, unexplained, and all things that go bump in the night. It may just haunt your dreams and sometimes your waking hours. Head to walkingtheshadowlands.com or search for it wherever you find your podcasts. Samuel was performed by Mike Ricard from the Stories of Strangeness podcast, where Mike and Zoe discuss all things on the topics of paranormal, folklore, cryptids, hauntings, and more. To check it out, head over to storiesofstrangeness.com or search for it wherever you listen to your podcasts. The Old Hag was performed by Victoria Irwin. For more from Victoria, search Texas Slang for Crazy wherever you get your podcasts. She also has a book out by the same name. Link is in the description. This episode was edited and produced by James Barnett. If you've enjoyed this episode, why not support The Night's End on Patreon to receive bonus content and merch? Head to patreon.com forward slash Night's End Podcast to check it out. Or you can find Night's End merch at nightsendpodcast.com forward slash shop. 
And as always, stay horrific, everyone. <laughs>